You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Hey, if you're new with us and you haven't gotten a chance to meet me, my name is Joe. I get the privilege of being one of the leaders here, and I'm super excited to be here this evening. Uh, we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of Luke this evening. We'll be in Luke chapter 10, so if you grab your Bibles and turn there, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. And uh, as you turn there, one of the things that we love to say here as a church is that we want to be a gospel-centered church family that grows disciples who glorify God. One of the major ways that we practice making disciples is through the preaching of God's Word. So if you turn to Luke 10, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us to get us started. If you bow your heads before I preach, it'd be great. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your Word. And Lord, as we dive into the Scriptures this evening, Lord, what we need is we need for you to make yourself known to us. We need you to be revealed to us through the Scriptures tonight. We need to be moved to a place where our desires and our affections and our thinking is radically transformed, radically changed to the place that we see you as the only necessary pursuit in our lives. And Lord, just, I just admit, I know that as I come tonight and as I gather with your people, I know that there are many things that are competing with my attention, many things competing to distract my heart from you. But I pray that your word and I pray that your spirit would just move in a powerful way <clears throat> on our hearts this evening. And that we would see you as the one and only necessary pursuit of life. In the name of Jesus. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. And so if you've ever gotten the opportunity to uh, hang out with me very much or get to know me, <clears throat> you would soon find that I am a person who is all about task lists, task lists, right? If you ever come into my office, you would see that my desk has sticky notes all over it. Um, I am a, a task-oriented, goal-oriented, D kind of driven mentality, kind of a get-or-done, set the goal, pursue it, accomplish it. I'm an accomplisher. I'm a person who loves to get the thing done. I'm not one who, who sits around and likes to talk about it. I'm one who likes to put actions to the words and likes to get after it. That's kind of the personality that I am. And we see this personality in the text. We see two different personalities. In fact, we see Martha and we see Mary. Martha is kind of your doer, and Mary is kind of one who would rather kind of sit. She's kind of more of your hippie type, like Harley, my daughter, 
flowers in the hair, sit around, sing kumbaya, contemplate, la la la, right? And so we see, these, we see these two personalities in our text as we turn there today. And as I study this text, as I kind of begin to think about different personalities and different ways of approaching things, and I came across this quote from Charles Spurgeon. I thought you guys might enjoy it. Spurgeon says this. You guys know I'm fond of Spurgeon for many reasons. Spurgeon says, The Lord sometimes allows his people to be driven into a corner so that they may learn how necessary he is to them. And this quote causes me to think. It causes me to question my life. It causes me to question, like, if you were to examine my life, what would you see? If you were to examine my life, what would you find out about what I hold dear? What would you find out about what I value, about what I think is most important, about what I believe to be the most necessary? What does my bank statement reveal about what I think is the most important? If you were to examine my life and you were to examine my attitude, what does my attitude say about what I hold dear? What do my words communicate in regards to what I think about the most? And as I thought about this, what I began to realize is that sometimes the things that seem really necessary aren't so necessary. The things that we think are super necessary at times we find are not as necessary as we thought they were. If you actually were to examine my life, you would learn this. You would learn that our family loves to invite people over. We love to practice hospitality. We love to grill food. We love to uh, have drinks together. We love to watch football games. We won't talk about the football game yesterday. <laughs> we love to have people in our home. But, but inevitably, here's what happens. Whenever you begin to practice hospitality, whenever you begin to invite people into your home, what happens is you get this task list of things that must be done, right? You've got to uh, vacuum and shampoo the carpets. You've got to take the trash out. You've got to mop the floors. You've got to wipe down the tables, wipe down the glass, wipe down the uh, doors. Um, did I say do dishes? You've got to do the dishes. It's probably a good idea if you take a shower and put some deodorant on and change your clothes. Like there's this huge task list of things that need to be done. And here's the problem. In my household of nine, the issue is the most task-driven person is me. Okay? I'm the one who's like all over it, want to get the thing done, get it over with so I can go on to the important stuff, which is sitting down, eating the grilled food and watching the football game and hanging out with friends. The problem is, the problem is, is that in my little task-driven mentality and in my personality, I begin to get this attitude that begins to, to say and to communicate that somehow maybe I'm doing more work than everybody else, right? Somehow in the midst of it, nobody else is doing it as much as I am or as good as I would hope that you would do until so I get this attitude and I start treating people that, like they are less important than the task list. In other words, I think the task list is actually more important. Getting my little check marks on the list done is more important than the people that are in front of me that are created in God's image. This is sickness, right? Isn't this sickness? I mean, this is, this is part of my issue. This happens from time to time. My family could probably tell you that it sounds worse than I'm probably even letting on. I need Jesus, right? What happens is I begin to learn, I begin to find out that the things that I once thought were super necessary are actually not as necessary as I once thought they were. This is something that Jesus wants to teach us. This is something that I believe he wants to show us through this text. And here's the deal, man. We, we all 
have a serving complex. We all have this issue with serving. See, when, when it comes to me and my family and inviting guests into our home and practicing hospitality, the reality is that God is calling me to serve other people with what he has given me. But the problem is, is that I have a serving complex, much like most of us do. In fact, I'm sure that most of you would agree that you have as much of a serving complex as I do. Here's what it looks like. It looks like this. Attitude number one is this. Jesus, you have served me so sacrificially. You have done so much for me. You have died on the cross. You have given yourself. You have, you have selflessly come, died, so that I could live. You have, you have served me so well that I now want to, in return, serve you. That's one attitude. And I would say that's a very biblical and very godly attitude that, Jesus, you have served me, therefore I wish to serve you. That's attitude number one. Attitude number two, which comes out of me, typically on Fridays and Saturdays, Saturdays mostly, attitude number two is this. Jesus, I want you to serve me. I want you to do something for me. Therefore, I will serve you. Follow me? I want you to fix my marriage so I'll give some ties to the church. I want you to help me in this relationship. Therefore, I'll serve some with my neighbor next door. What happens is we get into this give-to-get idea in this mentality. And we think that if we're really good Christians, Jesus will give us the things that we've always wanted. Jesus will just magic wand fix everything. And so we float back and forth between these two mentalities all the time. And it's, it's hard to see. Sometimes it can be very subtle as it comes up. And that's, again, the reason that we need this text because this is part of what the Spirit is addressing through this text. Again, notice that Martha and Mary are like polar opposites in their personalities. Notice in verse 38 and 39, it says this. Luke says, Jesus entered a village. And just stop right there as you think about this. We've been studying through Luke's gospel for a little over a year now. And as we study Luke's gospel, we find out a couple things about Luke's gospel. We find that as Luke writes, he wants to give us a certainty about who Jesus is. He wants us to be certain. He wants us to know for sure that Jesus is who he says he is and that he actually did what he came to do and that he's going to continue doing what he said he would do and that he will accomplish what he said he would accomplish. So he wants us to be a certain and for sure about that. And as Luke the good doctor writes all throughout the first nine, ten and a half chapters of the Gospel of Luke, he writes in a very organized fashion, placing his stories in, in just the right places to unpack something else about Jesus for us. And just a few verses ago, what we learned is that, that Jesus, after spending time doing ministry things such as healing people, casting out demons. In fact, some of you might remember there was a point where he cast some demons out of a dude on an island and then tossed the demons into the pig and the pigs ran out the cliff and the people in the town got mad because bacon was like top meat, I guess. And then they rejected him, right? Jesus does all these wild, miraculous things all throughout the first nine chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And somewhere in chapter 9, Luke informs us that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so the point is this. What's happening in the very first portion of verse 38, when it says that Jesus entered a village, is that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He's headed to the place that neither you nor I would ever want to go. He's headed to a place of sacrifice and torment. Why? For those who have lived as his enemies, that's why. That's where he's headed. 
And as he's headed along the way, he enters one village after the next, and he's looking for a place to lay his head and get something to eat. And he shows up at Mary and Martha's house, text says. And a woman named Martha welcomed him. And we would all do well to learn from this portion of the text as well, that when Jesus is proclaimed in our midst, by the power of the word and the revelation of the Holy Spirit, we would do well to welcome him into our midst. The question that we could all be asking ourselves is, how are we doing about that? What does your life look like outside of Sunday gatherings and maybe gospel community or small group gatherings? I like to say that Sundays and gospel communities are more like a tune-up. Like we should be acting like the church and living like the church throughout the week, feeding on the scriptures, hungering for God's word, living lives of worship and adoration of the Savior who came and died for us. And Sundays and gospel communities is just a tune-up to get us headed in the right direction. This is what it means to be living lifestyles that are welcoming to Jesus when he comes, stands at the door of our hearts, knocks on the door and says, hey, can I come in? A woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. And here's the deal. Like, as we look at these two ladies, what's really easy to do is to think one was more godly than the other. And that's not necessarily the reality. Though we do learn some things about Mary that Martha needs to learn as we work our way through the text. The reality is that both of these women are very godly women. They're practicing hospitality. They're inviting Jesus in. Martha, in all of her taskless things that she needs to get done, I, I got to get the bread on, I got to get the, the oven going, I got to get the carpet swept, I got to get the drinks poured. In, in all of that, what she was doing is trying to serve Jesus well as she welcomes him into her house. And this is a good thing, and the scriptures are very point blank and clear to us that we should, as Christ's followers, as Christians, we should practice hospitality. We don't do well to sit back on our thumbs and not practice hospitality. We should. And why? Why should we practice hospitality? Here's the reality. Jesus has practiced hospitality towards us in such ways that we were welcomed into the household of God. Though we were but enemies, Christ died and made us children of God. Though we were objects of wrath, Christ died and made us objects of love. So we become part of the king's house. So the biggest picture of hospitality and serving that we have is actually found in Christ himself. Therefore, because of that, our response is to love him in return by practicing hospitality and loving others. And so Martha's got this down really well. She loves him. And the reality is that Mary does too. In their two distinct personalities, these two women are loving Jesus really well. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. and She's saying... Feed me. Like, I need, I need to hear from my Savior. This is the attitude that Mary has. So, so neither of these women's actions are, are honestly even in question in this regard. In fact, both women would receive extra stars on their little Sunday school charts in the back room, and it would make them look like really great Christians, even though it wouldn't help them get to heaven any faster than the next. They would receive some great stars on their charts. They were both very godly examples of women. But the problem is not so much in the way that these women practice hospitality. That's not the issue in the text. The problem is actually in the heart of one of these women, Martha. And it eventually affects her behavior. 
And so this is the deal for all of us. This is, a, this is a problem for all of us. The heart is actually the problem. The heart of the problem is the heart. That would be another way of saying it. Look, Martha was working away on her task list, right? I mean, just imagine it. Martha's in the kitchen. Mary's in the living room, okay? Mary's sitting on the living room floor. Martha's in the kitchen working her tail off. And the whole time, I can just imagine what Martha's thinking. I can imagine what is running through her head. I can imagine what is taking place in her mind and in her heart. And the reality is that what she does is walks into the living room and has this ginormous meltdown in front of everybody, like a two-year-old kid, right? And, and, and like, don't look at me like you guys have never been there before, okay? I know every one of us has told this. Here's the way it goes. Jesus, would you please make them a better Christian? Because I'm really tired of bearing with them. Like, I've got this thing down, and they're driving me absolutely bonkers, right? This is what we do in our minds. We may not say this, period, point blank, and out front, but we do this. We do this in our hearts. We do this in our minds. We begin to say, Jesus, would you please go to work on that person over there and make them better because I'm sick and tired of dealing with them. And we have our own little meltdown temper tantrum deep down inside. See, these temper tantrums for me, they're so unadulterated. I'm so sinful, this happens like every Saturday. And my kids are like, Dad, sit down and drink your stinking coffee. Okay? Don't talk anymore until you've drank two cups. My wife is usually throwing things at me. <laughs> and she should. <laughs> well, what was it that was taking place in Martha's heart, right? Look, look at verse 40. Verse 40 says, Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. You ever had one of those moments? You ever had one of those moments, one of those meltdowns? You're attempting to serve Jesus. You're attempting to serve Jesus and his people, no less. Right? Ever get distracted from what Jesus actually wants you to do? Ever get distracted from Jesus himself because of your task list of things you wanted to do for Jesus? Like, think about that for a minute. Ever get distracted from just spending time and being with Jesus and becoming like Jesus and focusing on Jesus and drawing near to Jesus? Ever get distracted from doing that to just gain to your task list? Ever make drawing near to Jesus just part of your task list? Like, if I'm going way too far for you, you guys can just be like, I checked out a long time ago. Isn't it easy, though, to say, I've got to read my Bible this morning? Like, so I can just get with Jesus, and that becomes part of my task list, that i got to check off my list, and somehow now I'm a happy, clappy, good Christian. This is part of the issue in this text. Have Have you ever been in that place where you've had your identity stroked by your sense and your pursuit of accomplishments rather than pursuing the presence of Christ himself? Here's the deal. Like when our doing is separated from our being, we can rest assured that we have a, a huge heart issue. And so Jesus didn't create human doings. He created human beings. But the problem is that we get it mixed up and we think it's all about the pursuit of getting things done. We think it's all about the pursuit of serving Jesus rather than having him serve us so that we become more like him. We think it's more about the pursuit of accomplishing things rather than just pursuing that which is necessary, which is Christ himself. When our doing is divorced from our being, we will become spiritually imbalanced. 
In other words, sometimes we can serve Jesus so that he will serve our selfish tendencies. comes back to that, Jesus, I want you to do something for me, therefore I will now serve you or follow you. We begin to think, we begin to say things like this. It's almost basically what Martha said when she came, comes to him. She says, Lord, don't you see all my work? Don't you see my accomplishments? Don't you see all the things that have taken place, all the things that have happened in my life? Don't you th- see all the big steps I've made? Right? Jesus, would you please go to work on them? Jesus, would you please do a work in their heart? Would you please make them better Christians? Would you please help them grow up? Would you please help them mature? Would you please help them do what's right? Don't you see what's happening over here with me? Like, I know that we've all been there. Don't you see all my effort, Jesus? This is where Martha is at. She literally basically says, don't you care that I'm being taken advantage of here? Don't you care, Jesus, that I'm over here doing all this work and everybody else is just sitting on their rear? Right? This is where Martha's heart is at in this text and in these moments. And we've all been there. All been there a time or two. Probably be there a few more times. The reality is part of the way that Martha is saying this is almost to the extent that she's saying, you know what, Jesus? You would prove that you actually care for me and love me if you would fix Mary. If you would make her do what I want her to do, you would prove to me that you actually care. Don't you care, Jesus? Prove to me that you care. Right? This is what happens when we get this whole serving thing backwards. And we begin to live out of our sense of doing, rather our sense of being. It's a deep, deep heart issue. And what happens is we become just like Martha in this text. We take pride in our labor rather than in Jesus' finished work at the cross. We begin to see other people as problems. Come on, there ain't nobody in here that's ever seen somebody else as a big major problem. I've seen you all looking around. Like, as soon as I said it, you were like, oh, what? Like, you were talking to me. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I ain't nobody else problems. Every one of us does this. Like, they are the issue. It's not me. This is pride. This is what ruins marriages. I tell you, I've walked through it. They are the problem, not me. Begin to see other people as problems. Ultimately, we begin to question Jesus' love for us based on whether or not he changes someone else's behavior. This is what happens when our working for Jesus doesn't flow out of the work that Jesus has done for us. And can I lay my cards on the table for a minute? Like midstream, like pause the movie. Like if there's one big idea I want you guys to take home from what I preached to you tonight and from this text, it's this. Only Jesus is necessary. Just write that down. Like, only Jesus is necessary. My hope is that just that thought and just that phrase and just that sentence and just those words, only Jesus is necessary. My hope and my prayer is that that would cause your heart to well up, that it would cause your mind to spin into outer space, and that it would cause you to think deeply under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about where you're at in life. If someone were to examine your life, would they find that in your life only Jesus is necessary? Have you landed there yet? My hope and my prayer is that there would be many of you that would land in this place that only Jesus is necessary. There's no other pursuit that will give you hope. There's no other pursuit that will bring you fulfillment. There is no other pursuit in life that will make things right between you and your Father 
in heaven. Only Jesus is necessary. Thank you. So how can we become people who serve Jesus, who serve God in an authentic and real and unselfish and biblical and godly way? How can we become people who serve Jesus authentically? How can our serving, our work, our labor, our efforts, our pursuits, our accomplishments, everything that we pursue, how can that actually become something that is real and authentic in a God-honoring sort of way? Again, we'd like to say, as a church, that we want to grow disciples who glorify God. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? And what does it look like for us to actually be people who are living that way? What does it look like for us to have everything that we do flow from a deep understanding and wholehearted pursuit, a joyful and wholehearted, happy pursuit of Jesus himself because we see him as the one missionary who left his clean place in heaven to come to a sin-soaked, filthy place called earth to pursue you and I. He came for that reason. He came to do what you and I could never do. What does it look like for us to serve him because he has served us so well? well? Notice Jesus' response in verses 41 and 42. Jesus responds to the temper tantrum that Martha throws. And he responds in a much different way than I would respond. Let me just get that out on the table lest you think that somehow I've got this down because I don't. Because if somebody throws a temper tantrum in front of me, I might just be liable to throw one right back and see if I can throw one that's bigger than you. I just one-up you. That's how bad my pride and issues are, okay? So Jesus, though, he's perfect, and that's what I love about him, because we can take our cues from him, and as he speaks to Martha, he's actually speaking directly to our hearts as well. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. But I love Jesus' response here. I love it. Because he continues to draw these arrows, like these happy, clappy faces. Arrows, stars, little boxes, underlining, highlighting. He's like drawing attention to the real deep heart issues. And so here's the issue today with modern evangelicalism. For us, we have a tendency to focus on actions. Actions are easy, right? Actions are a piece of cake. Like, don't smoke weed. Don't get trashed. Don't have sex out of wedlock. Don't do this. Uh, do this, do go to church, do go to gospel community, do give your money, do these things. We've got these lists of do's and don'ts that kind of just attack all of the actions in our lives, right? But the reality is what Jesus does, though, actions are very important. Don't get me wrong. Actions are important. What Jesus does is he dives deep and he attacks the issues deep in the heart. Because from the roots of the heart is where our behavior comes from. So what Jesus does in this text is he kind of sidelines kind of shoves aside some of the behavior for a moment. He's not like, hey, Martha, quit throwing a temper tantrum and go sit in the corner, suck your thumb for five minutes, and then come back. He doesn't do that. He actually dives deep into the middle of what's going on deep within her heart, especially when he says, hey, Martha, you're anxious. You're anxious and you're troubled about many things. In other words, he's basically saying, hey, your anxiety is over unnecessary trouble. Like you are being anxious over unnecessary troubles that you actually cannot control. Take that one. 
to the bank for a minute and think about that. How often have you been super duper anxious because of your lack of control over things that are happening in your life that you actually cannot control? Here, let me lay this out for you. Hold your left hand up with me. Sorry, your right hand. That's your right hand. This is my left hand. Hold your right hand up real fast. Come on, everybody gets to participate. This is kind of like Sunday school, making sure you all aren't falling asleep on our first Sunday night gathering. So your left hand, actually your right hand up here, this is your list of things you need to get done this week. Right? I looked back at my schedule from this last week, number of appointments, number of late night meetings, some study time, so on and so forth. I put that all on my checklist, got people coming over on Saturday for the Husker football game, can't figure out why I fired that coach, hired that coach. Anyways, so we got this list. I feel like I can control that pretty well, right? I feel like I can control that because I can work my checklist down it. Now, now hold up your other hand. This is your left hand. Hold that up. Now you got both hands up, right? And here's the deal. Some of us think we can actually control people. Like, I think I control my wife or my kids or my employees or my husband. Or, and guess what we continuously find out? I can't control them. I can't control people who are created in the image of God any more than I can control my task list. But the problem is this. God created people in the image of God, right? God created people in his image. And what we consistently do as people is we either A, worship other created beings rather than worshiping God himself by attempting to control them to make them do what we want them to do to, to stroke our identity issues, right? So I grew up in a home, my dad left, my mom is crazy, I got identity issues. Identity rolls out of your relationship, okay? Your identity comes from relationship. You can put your hands down now, I know you guys' arms falling asleep. Identity rolls from relationship, right? And so when you got identity issues like I do, you begin to try to go to people and control them, make them do what you want to make yourself feel better, so on and so forth. This is what Martha is doing with Mary, trying to control her. Jesus, make her get off her butt, right? Make her get over here, help me out. On the other side of it, Martha has this other issue. She's got this task list. She can find her identity now. If I get the task list done, if I get everything accomplished, now I'm going to be like super Christian. Super Christian to the rescue with my little cape on the Christian TV station on TV. Right? And what happens is Martha's finding out that she actually can't control her stinking tax task list either. Hey, just try getting through one night of like six hours of sleep. How many of you get to accomplish that without getting interrupted? Not many. You can't even control your sleep patterns. And I bet you that's on your task list. My point is this. We cannot control either people or our task list, but what we do is we find our identity in both of those. We wind up being anxious over unnecessary things that we can not control. Jesus basically says this, says, hey, Martha, hey, lady, you got a problem. He's like, your problem isn't really that Mary isn't performing the way that you want her to. Your problem is this. Your problem is that you are anxious and troubled by things that you cannot control. You've somehow taken the sovereignty of God and taken it from here and usurped that and placed yourself over it, thinking you can control it, control me by making me make her do what you want her to do so that you could then prove to yourself that I actually care for you. That's your problem is actually that you are anxious and troubled by things you can't control. You thought that it was necessary to control Mary's behavior and you've even demanded that I make her do it to prove that I love you. We cannot control the accomplishing of a task list any more than we can control other people's behavior. Every one of us hearing this message struggles with these kinds of things at some levels or another, right? 
Haven't we all sacrificed to serve somebody? Haven't we all given of our time, our talent, and our treasure in one way or another to serve someone only to have them turn around and stab us in the back, right? And what do you think in those moments? Oh, God, it's what you think, right? It's what I think. I'm just saying. That's why I need this text. That's why I need Jesus so much. There's so much sickness inside of me and you too. It's why we need Jesus. That's why the good news is the good news. Because, see, if you and I were to come and, like, serve Jesus and give him all these things and say, Ha, Jesus, I did this. Now you've got to do this for me. Well, then somehow I control Jesus now, right? This is part of our issue. It really is part of our issue. And haven't we all dreamed of that day when somebody, somebody that we've invested in will actually reinvest the time and the talent and treasure back into us? Haven't we dreamed of just that moment? Haven't we all looked at the person across from us and wondered when they were going to get their act together? Haven't we all wondered when someone else was going to serve Jesus with the same enthusiasm as we do? Haven't we all sometimes even just thought for even a brief moment just wondering how long it takes for somebody else just to grow up and quit acting so stupid so we can get on with the important stuff. Haven't we all thought this way? Right? We've all been Martha in the kitchen when we should have been Mary in the living room. In all of our super mature, macho, self-serving musings, sometimes what happens is we realize that we've been duped. We've been duped into that one attitude, that one way of thinking that if I just serve God, he'll give me what I want. Like if I just, if I just rub this thing just right, I'll just get all the prizes I wanted and everything will just be good. And we realize that we've been thinking immaturely. We begin to realize that we've actually been distracted. This is a part of the text as well. That word distracted by serving says that Martha was distracted by her serving, actually means this. It means to be disattracted. So think of the word attraction. I am super duper attracted to big four-wheel drive trucks. And so imagine that you, you want this big four-wheel drive truck and then you get it and then somehow it loses its shine. It loses its luster. You are no longer attracted to that. This happens once again in relationships, marriages. Well, I loved her for like the first 12 months and then she became kind of an attractive to me so I found somebody else. The grass is greener on the other side mentality, right? This is happening in this text to a certain extent because what's happening with Martha is that at one point she was so attracted to Jesus, okay? At one point, she would have been just like Mary. And the reality is she became distracted by her serving and began to think that somehow she'd get her identity stroked from that, from serving. So she became disattracted or unattracted to the one who once attracted her every desire. Then in steps Jesus. Jesus walks in. Jesus says, hey, your task list, it's good. Like the things you want to do for me are good. But as good as that task list is, it is worthless in comparison with the only thing that can never be taken from you. And that one thing, that one necessary thing that can never be taken from you is me. Jesus literally says it in verse 42. He says this, this one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Listen, all of our task lists will wind up getting burned up someday. All of the things that we have on this earth will wind up going away. But the one thing, the one thing that will prevail is Christ himself. The one thing that is necessary for you and I is pursuing Christ. We've all made stupid choices. 
right? All of us. We've all made stupid choices. We've gotten married for the wrong reasons. We've become part of a church for the wrong reasons. Started serving for the wrong reasons, right? Started giving our time, talent, and treasure for the wrong reasons. Joined a cause for the wrong reasons. Later to find out this wasn't as fun or as cool or as hip or as awesome as we thought it was. What happens is we find that if we pursue any type of moralism that is defunct or divorced from Christ himself, then what we have is something called a Christless moralism. And Christless moralism, I would argue, is not even moralism in the first place if it's divorced from Christ. Jesus, Jesus commends Mary as being someone who chose the good portion which will never be taken from her. Mary had learned the necessity of choosing the presence of Christ before her work. That's what Mary had learned. Mary chose to let Jesus serve her so that she could then truly serve Jesus unselfishly. Instead of serving Jesus with selfish motives, she was serving him with a pure heart. It says, man, you have served me. I just want to learn from you. Mary chose the choice portion. She chose the choice portion, which is Christ, so that she could truly serve Christ out of the reserve of his love. This love that had been lavished upon her and would continue to be lavished upon her as this gospel unfolds through his sacrifice at the cross. And Mary's moral deeds or her good deeds or her good behavior flowed from her understanding Her understanding and making Christ the only necessary thing in life. Which means that all of her doing of good things, all of her moralistic deeds, all of the great things that she did, had to be subject or surrendered to her unashamed and unhindered pursuit of Christ himself. The question for us is this. Is Jesus the one necessary pursuit of your life? Is Jesus the one necessary pursuit of your life. The psalm we sing tonight as we worship God through music, healer, is you are my portion. That's where this is lifted from, is this text. Jesus, you are my portion. You are all that I need. You are all that's necessary for me. Every other pursuit that I have pursued is hopeless. It's rubbish. And I just need you. And the question for us is that. Is he the one necessary pursuit in your life? Is Jesus serving you daily? Are you sitting at Jesus' feet, figuratively speaking? Are you eager to hear his word? Are you hungering and thirsting for the scriptures? Do you desire the presence of Christ more than anything else? Or or are you just continually frustrated because everyone else doesn't do what you want them to do? Are you always in relational conflict with someone else who just needs to change right now? Are you demanding things from Jesus just to soothe your frustrations? Are you more concerned with keeping up your image intact through your list of accomplishments than you are with growing in relationship with Jesus. And if Jesus isn't the one necessary pursuit of your life, then what you are pursuing, if it is not subjected and submitted and surrendered to the pursuit of Christ as the only necessary thing in your life, then everything else will just get wadded up like a paper task list tossed in the trash can. But if you are wholeheartedly and joyfully 
wholeheartedly, joyfully pursuing Christ, who is the good portion, who is the choice portion, the best portion, the, like, like the choicest wine or the best piece of meat at the table. If you are hungering and thirsting for Christ alone, then you will find contentment in the presence of Christ amidst any circumstance that is beyond your control. Now, are you a person who is wholeheartedly and joyfully pursuing Christ as the one necessary pursuit of your life? Is this what's evidenced in your life? If people were to examine your life, what would they see? Would they see Christ as being the one necessary pursuit? Christ found you and I to be his one necessary pursuit when he came to this earth. Our response to that is to then make him the one necessary pursuit of our lives. To invite our musicians back to the front as we begin to wrap up our time together. One of my other favorite activities, my other favorite activities, which I hope to plan to do when I get home this evening, is to start up my grill and clean the grill off. It's a little bit of a ritual in this. Guys, if you like to grill, ladies, if you like to grill, it's a little bit of a ritual in this, right? You turn the grill on, it's gotta get heat to the right temperature. So it starts burning all the old stuff off from the last time that you were in there grilling. And then you go in with your wire brush and you begin to, begin to scrape it all off. And then you got to prepare the meat. For me, it's a ribeye steak. That's my portion, a ribeye steak. Preferably 16 ounces or more. I'm happy. So I love to prepare the grill and a ribeye steak and shrimp, cheesy bread with garlic on it and butter. I like to prepare it like from scratch. I love to get um, um, my own blend of craft beers from the grocery store, like you go and you mix your own six pack. I mean, this is all part of the prep cycle that goes into place to preparing a fantastic meal, right? Chocolate pie, you gotta have chocolate pie. Chocolate pie with, uh, um, with uh, cream on top. What's that white stuff called? Whipped cream, thank you. Thank you, whipped cream. Got to have whipped cream on top of the chocolate pie. So you get it all prepared, you get the table set, you get it all set out. Now can you imagine, can you imagine all of the excitement that I might be feeling inside as I think about that kind of meal? In fact, as I think about it, my mouth waters a little bit and I want to go home right now and I want to prepare this meal. But can you imagine what it would be like if I went home and I prepared the meal and I was so excited about it and then I didn't eat the meal? Can you, can you imagine how stupid that would be, right? This is what this text is speaking to. Martha, Martha was taking more pride in the preparation of serving Jesus than actually consuming Jesus as the meal. And honestly, honestly, this is a problem for us. This is what this text is all about. Jesus is the choice portion. And we get to get all like caught up and glad and joyful in the wholehearted consumption of him. Think about it. Think about it. Let the Spirit of God bring into your mind this idea. Let the Spirit of God bring a deep craving into your heart, a deep desire for Christ and Christ alone. Let the Spirit of God bring to you not just a deep desire to serve Him well, but to have Him serve you well so that you might serve Him well. It's one of the problems in 
evangelicalism and evangelical America, or you could say American Christianity is this. Rather than seeing Jesus, say it this way, sometimes we see Jesus as our meal ticket to a better life. Think about that. Sometimes we see Jesus as a meal ticket to a better life rather than the main course of the best life ever. Philip Reichen commenting on this text says this. He says, while Martha was preparing one meal, Mary was having another, better one. She was feeding on the word of God. And this, this for us, this is what the communion table is all about. Here in a few moments, we're gonna partake in a meal together called communion. We will consume the bread and the juice which has been prepared for us by physical hands here, but in reality, in a, in a spiritual level, as it is representative of Christ and his broken body and his shed blood. As we partake in that together, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're partaking in, in a meal that unites those who, who have been bought by Christ, who have been united by the same Spirit. The hands that actually prepared that meal was our Father in heaven as he gave his son as a ransom for our mess, our sin, and our mistakes. And so when we participate in this meal together as believers, we're participating in something to remember. It's not about me, it's about him. And that Jesus really is the main course of the best life ever. The problem for some of us is that for some of you here, this meal is meaningless. Right? There's some of you here who you have a good face on. And you say, yeah, you know what to say because you live in America and Christianity has a pretty good language. There's some of you here that you're just here because you got dragged here maybe. And so for you, this meal is meaningless and we would not want you. If you are not someone who professes Christ to be your Savior, if you are not someone who could say, yes, in these moments you're preaching to my heart and I'm hearing from the Word and, and I want to be like Mary. I want to be like Mary who, who makes Jesus the one necessary pursuit of life. I know I'm a mess and that's why I need Him. And if that's you, if that's where you're at, then in a few moments, we would invite you to come and join in this meal that we call communion as we feed on the Word of God. But if that's not you, and you're here, and you're not a believer, and your heart is not so moved to make Christ that necessary portion, we'd ask you to stay right where you're at. We're not, we're not wanting you to partake in something that is foreign to you. We don't want to force you to do something, be a part of something that, that makes no sense. But we would like to be available to pray with you. And in fact, we'd like to be available. There'll be a few of us near the front here in a few moments that will be serving the communion. And then there will be a few of us near the front as well that would just be here to pray with you. Any needs you have are not beyond the watching eyes of God and his ability to provide for you. And we would like to minister to you in that way through the ministry of prayer. So we would invite you to come here in a few moments. As we, come, as we come to the close of this message, I'd like to remind you of what Spurgeon said, a quote in the early part of this message. 
that the Lord sometimes allows his people to be driven into a corner so that they may learn how necessary he is to them. That was my experience of reading this text. That was my experience of studying this text. Like, my worst days of the week are Friday and Saturdays because I'm a doer. And I take Fridays and Saturdays off. My attitude stinks. I'm quiet because I'm wrestling with all of those selfish things inside of me. And so I feel like the Lord used this text to kind of drive me into a corner to remind me Christ and Christ alone is the only necessary pursuit of life. All the rest of it is going to be laid to waste. So that's my prayer for all of us is that God and his sovereignty through this message and through this text has driven all of us into a corner today through this message and through this text so that we would choose Jesus as our only necessary portion. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, as we bring this message to a close and as we enter into a time of worship through music and, and reflection and even response through participating in a, a meal together, I pray for everyone that would come and that would participate in that meal that we would all remember how necessary you are and that we would find you to be the choicest portion and that we would find you to be the main course of the best life ever. Pray, Jesus, that you would speak to each of us as we respond in these moments. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Hey, I love you guys. Thanks for letting me preach. There'll be a few of us near the front to serve communion and pray with you if you've had these. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.